you know, there, there's obviously there's, there's fire code, fire separation. That's a bit, bit more complicated. Means of egress is, is another big one. Our ceiling heights can be different. And so that's a big thing that I see. Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larvey. Hey everybody, Sarah Larby here, and today's guest is Ken Beacondam from Legal Second Suites, and uh, Ken actually is one of my partners in a few deals that we bought together. One is one of the buildings that we bought, that 22-unit conversion, commercial conversion project. Ken is also a great investor, is doing a lot of different projects, and uh, I hope you guys enjoy the podcast. And he's also on the new show that we've been doing. I don't know if you guys watch YouTube, but if you do, check out the Multifamily Investor Show. It is our new show. We're actually showcasing a lot of our projects and our properties, some of our clients' properties as well, and it's actually really fun. We're uh, we're showing you a lot of the, the reality of what it is. And I'll tell you, these projects aren't, you know, done and finished in a show. They're they're long. So we're kind of taking you through our journey of what we're working on. If you're interested in that, check it out on YouTube at the Multifamily Investor Show. And before we bring in Ken, Dahlia, what is today's financing tip of the week? Hi, I'm Dahlia, founder of Streetwise Mortgages. I've noticed that more and more investors are stepping into multifamily investing these days. And because these are larger assets, investors tend to work with others to bring money to these deals, to acquire the asset, and sometimes to renovate it. So I wanted to share with you a tip to help you make financing a little easier. And by easier, I mean reducing the chances that the lender is going to require personal guarantees from your partners, and also reducing the chances they're going to ask for tons of paperwork. So here is a proposed structure that will help you achieve that. Firstly, when you're buying commercial assets, I highly recommend that you put these assets in a holding company and not in your personal name. And if you are the expert in the investment strategy, then you can go as the director of the corporation, you can be the director of the corporation and you can add others who are your key partners also as a direct directors of the corporation. Ideally, as directors of the business, you would own 50% or more of the shares of that business. Ideally, majority shareholders. For those who you are bringing into the deal, ideally, keep the individual share ownership at 20% or less, and the collective ownership from these partners at 50% or less. Why? Because when the lenders look for personal guarantees, they're first going to look at the directors of the business and uh, look at their net worth and look at their experience, but they're also going to look at the majority shareholders of the business. And if the main applicants who are the directors of the business do not have the net worth, which is generally 25% of the loan amount you're applying for, then the lenders will start to look outside of the directors to supplement these personal guarantees. So if you want to minimize the chances they're going to ask for these personal guarantees from others, 
you want to make sure that the front runners on the deal have the required net worth, they have the required experience, and also have majority ownership in the business if possible. If you are looking to grow your portfolio into the multifamily space and you're looking for guidance on how to structure your deal with others or how to acquire an asset and turn it around and how to plan your exit, myself and my team would be happy to assist you. You can contact us at info at streetwisemortgages.com. Thank you so much, Dahlia. That was great, guys. Reach out to Streetwise Mortgages for financing help or any advice or anything that you need or just to close on properties or strategic deals or any of that good stuff in between. Uh, On that note, let's bring in Ken. Ken, welcome back. How are you? I'm doing great, Sarah. It's great to be back on your podcast again. It's been a a while since I've I've, uh, joined you. Yeah. Originally, we didn't really know each other that well. And then we were talking and I always thought you had some some really cool things that you were doing. I, I love that you've got a good reputation in the industry, but you're you're also a BCI and designer, you're an investor, you're now a developer, and we'll get into that. But we started doing some projects together with Lee from Wise Construction and Lou and done some really cool conversions. But I think last time you were on, it must have been what, a couple of years ago now, maybe more. Yeah, it's probably been a couple of years since I've been on your your podcast. Yeah. So for those of you who are listening, Ken is a, is a an investor, and and I think originally originally we connected when we both re- were investing in Brantford. But you've done a lot since then. So why don't you just give us a, an overview of of what it is that you you do from an investment standpoint, and also from a BCIN designer standpoint. Yeah. So no, a quick summary of what of what what I do, what my company does is basically we're a design, build, and manage company. My day-to-day involvement is primarily on the on the design side of things, helping investors and clients obtain those architectural drawings, obtain those building permits. And we do we cover you know, anything from a small little kind of basement apartment to upwards of 30 unit plus building conversions, which uh, which Sarah that we've been involved in together as of late. So and kind of anything in between. And we also help some, some everyday homeowners with just some simple addition projects or, or interior renovations to their homes. But our client base is primarily real estate investors who are looking to density on their, on their properties and their homes or their buildings. And so, yeah, we've been doing this. I've been doing it since about 2018 full time. And that's when I kind of started the design company. And then that just evolved into... What we're doing today, which is also construction and property management, you know, people need their drawings, but just as importantly, they need mm-hmm. to have the construction ability as well to get the project done. And so for, for many years, I was managing the construction as well on my own, but it just, it became a lot for me to, to manage the design projects and the construction on a day-to-day basis. So this is when I partnered up with with Lee Pollock, and then we formed Wise Construction Group, and this was back in December of 2021. Mm-hmm. And it's been going incredible. There's power when you can come together, um, and you, partnerships aren't always easy, but when you find the right partner, it can really set the stage for amazing things to happen. And this is what's happening in our company right now. We just there's a lot of growth happening, and we're getting into some really cool projects. Sarah has been you know, great partnering with you as well on these projects. And we're just getting into bigger and bigger 
bigger projects. As a result of that, that partnership with Lee, because Lee has a decent portfolio of properties. Myself, I have a decent por portfolio of properties. And so we're able to establish a property management company really to primarily serve our own properties, but then also be able to offer that service to our clients as well, kind of our in-house our in-house clients. So, so, you, so you've got you've got lots lots of different lots of different segments of a, a big business essentially from a real estate standpoint, plus your own investments as well. Yes, yes. It, everything started as a result of me being an investor primarily. That's the first hat I wear as an investor, and then all of these kind of different business entities have kind of resulted because of that, mm -hmm. that growth. Now it's at a point where it is a business. It's a legitimate business with employees and staff. And that comes with its own set of, you know, responsibilities and priorities in order to keep everybody employed and keep clients happy and all that kind of stuff. So it's a real interesting journey. Yeah, I mean it's it's fun. I'm I'm at your guys's office quite a bit as well. So, all right. So let let's let's dig into some things here. I think a lot of people have done listening to this podcast or have at least heard of basement conversions or duplex conversions, but not every BCIN designer is comfortable understanding what a building is and how to do conversions from a commercial to residential standpoint. And like I, I think you just came back from looking at a hotel we have all under contract right now. Uh, an old, old haunted hotel that we want to convert. But what are some key differences when somebody is, is going from your duplex to something bigger, right? That they're actually wanting to convert something, whether it's commercial to residential, like what are some things they should be aware of? Yeah. So once we shift from doing houses that are defined in the building code of, of up to two dwelling units, you know, so your typical house with a basement apartment, that's defined as a house in the building code. Once we become, once we go to three legal units or more, we're now considered a building under the building code. And there's a different definition between houses and buildings. And so there's a shift in not only the design requirements, uh, the building code requirements, but also just the, the, the amount of renovations that, that are required for those types of projects. And so you know, there's, there's obviously there's, there's fire code, fire separation. That's a bit, bit more complicated. Means of egress is, is another big one. Our ceiling heights can be different. And, and so that's a big thing that I see with clients is when they're shifting from going from doing houses into buildings is that they have to start thinking a little bit differently about the requirements. Because I, I especially when people are just going from a duplex into a triplex, there can be a big shift there. And this is where I see a lot of people kind of trip up because they're, th they're thinking like they're converting a house, but they're not, they're converting a building. So they, they, they forget about their ceiling heights, which is, which is a higher requirement under, under the building code. They're, they kind of forget about their means of egress and stuff like that. So, so it's definitely a little bit more, more challenges involved, but it's not, I wouldn't say it's, it's that much, it's not that much more difficult if you know what those, those differences are. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey, just want to take a quick moment and introduce you to one of my go-to realtors, Jamil Rahimtula, who brings with him 15 plus years of experience as a real estate investor, as well as has a background in renovations and property management. He's found my last handful of deals for myself and also for my students. 
and uh, is great at negotiations as well. But it is important that when you are picking a realtor that they are investors themselves, understand the investment game and have worked with many investors because they're going to be able to bring a team. They're going to be able to bring a team of solid trades and everything else that you need so that you can get into investing and continue your investing game a lot smoother. So in order to reach out to Jamil, you can call or text him. His number is 416-275-7819. Again, it's 416-275-7819 or his website, jamilrahimtula.com. Now back to the show. And now back to the show. Now you've got the experience in that, but can another BCIN designer, like what's the difference between, I guess, you as an example that have done the, in these bigger buildings versus any other BCIN designers? Is there a difference? Like, can everybody do essentially everything or is there like a niche that people essentially will specialize in? Well, so when you're a BCIN designer, you can get your accreditation or your, your requirements either as a, as a BCIN designer doing houses or small buildings under the building code. And there's other designations that you can that you can work towards. But like in any industry, people specialize in certain types of projects, right? So there's some BCIN designers or architect firms that they'll just kind of focus on one type of or one, yeah, one type of project, right? Some people, some architects or designers, all they do is new build. They do all new construction. They're very familiar with like new code requirements and all that kind of stuff. And other other designers, they're primarily focusing on existing buildings. Some designers only focus on houses, right? So they're not, they don't do design projects for buildings, which is a whole different part of the code that you have to be concerned about. And my specialty in the case of our company, we're specializing in primarily existing buildings and conversions. So our specialty is in adding units, adding density, and we're able to do houses, but we're also able to do the buildings. And so, yeah, there's other, there's other designers in, in the industry that I see that are, they're doing conversion work, they're converting, but they're only kind of focusing on houses. So they, they're, they're only well-versed up to two units. Whereas I know our firm, we've have, we've primarily switched into doing three, fours and upwards. So we have, we've gained a lot of experience in doing the building conversions. Okay. All right. That's cool. So, so let's take a, like a shell, like a building shell, for example, and there's an investor that's looking at purchasing it. Maybe the numbers worked and what, like, when do they get you involved and what are the steps that you would essentially do to make sure that that building, maybe that shell could be converted into 10 units or whatever it is that they want to do. Yeah. So a very similar process to when we're analyzing houses and when we're analyzing buildings, we are going to the, the zoning bylaw and we're trying to determine what, so what's, what's the highest density of units that we can add to this building, right? So we're looking into the zoning bylaw and looking for the permitted uses to see, can we, can we do more than two units? Can we do three or more units in this zone? And are there parking implications for these amount of units. And so when, when people bring me a building to look at and say, hey, Ken, we, we found this great building. We want to convert it. We want to put these X amount of units in it. Um, yeah, I dig into the zoning bylaw. I take a look, say, yes, yes, we can. We are permitted to go up to this amount of units. Just because the zoning would permit that amount of units doesn't necessarily mean that the building itself will be able to fit that amount of units as per minimum Ontario building code standards. Mm -hmm. uh, and so just because a zoning may allow 10 units doesn't mean the physical building can fit 10 units and we can meet all the code requirements. So 
This is where, you know, you have to be able to get on site and do a walkthrough of the building and take a look around and see, okay, can we meet our minimum height requirements? Can we meet our means of eat? Like today, for instance, when I was at the hotel, the Haunted Hotel, which is a great building, I was primarily there to check and make sure that, okay, can we meet our means of egress? Because in a building, when you have a shared entryway, you need a secondary means of egress, which is a secondary exit door that leads down to the ground. So this is where sometimes fire escapes come in or, or what have you. And so, yes, the zoning of the hotel is going to permit really as many units as we can provide for in, in parking spaces, but there are constraints to the building that we have to, to work with. So, yeah. Okay. All right. So, so they essentially get something under contract and during the due diligence, that's when they might reach out to you. Or should they reach out to you prior to that? Typically, they'll reach out to me once they have a building of interest in mind. They may not have necessarily put in an offer yet, but they're just kind of doing some high-level analyzing of the deal. And so they'll send me the property address and say, hey, look, can we could we do this building? Mm-hmm. Then I tell them from a high-level perspective, yes, we can, we can do that as per the zoning, but we will need to make a site visit to determine building code compliance. Got it. Okay. And then so essentially you're going to do the drawings, the drawings get get approved, they go to the city. Like what is the process? Like how do you work with the city and the client? Yeah, so we're basically like the like the quarterback of the team. We we bring all the people together in order to get that permit issued. So obviously we're involved as far as the architectural drawings. That's that's primarily what our firm does is the architectural drawings, but we do work with third party mechanical designers and professional engineers. So for your HVAC or your plumbing or your electrical designs, and also the structural engineers, we work with these third-party consultants, but our role is to kind of bring everybody together. Once we have all of our necessary drawings together or reports, then we're the ones who make the physical application to the city. And we work with the city staff. We communicate back and forth with staff to get that permit across the finish line. And so it it takes a lot of coordination. Mm -hmm. Uh, The drawings is one aspect of of the permit process. It's the coordination of consultants and the submission to the city, which is the other half, which can also take a lot of time to sort out. And especially when you get into the larger buildings, you know, there's there's more things to consider. There's more requirements to be met. There's more consultants to engage. There's more departments at the city to engage. So it really takes, it does take some experience in that process. And this is where our company gets involved. Really cool. And you, and you mentioned time too, right? Because I think a lot of people think, oh, we're going to close on this building. We're going to start renos. We're going to start construction right away. So even for a, a duplex conversion or a bigger building, there's there's a time that needs to be, essentially the city is just not working on our timelines. And so what, like, and I know every single city in every town is going to be different, but on average, you know, what is an, a good rule of thumb for how much time before really ultimately you get your permits in hand? Yeah, so depending on the design firm and their current capacity and the the extent of the project, it could take anywhere from maybe two weeks to six or eight weeks to get your actual drawings together, all of your documentation together. And then depending on the type of application you're making to the city, so for instance, as an interior alteration to the existing building, that's only a 10 business day review cycle. When we're doing a change of use, 
permit application, which is like we're converting a house to two units. That's a change of use. That's a 15 business day review cycle at the city that's legislated under the Building Code Act. When we get into the larger building, they typically go to the building engineering departments at the municipalities and they operate on a 20 business day review cycle legislated by the Building Code Act. And it it's typically not one review cycle that it takes. It typically takes you at least two sometimes even three review cycles to sort out all of the deficiencies or staff comments to get your permit across that finish line. So, and then obviously, you know, many of the municipalities aren't even keeping up with those legislated timelines. And those legislated timelines only apply to the first review cycle. A secondary review cycle, there is no legislated timeline. And this is a big issue in the mm -hmm. Building Code Act. And this is why we see plan examiners really take so much time on those secondary reviews because, you know, nobody's there to keep them accountable. There's no legislative act to kind of keep them accountable. So, so yes, like it can take some time to get your permit across the finish line, you know, we, on, on a quick permit submission that is very easy, like a bungalow conversion, for instance, that can, by the time you get your drawings, let's say two to four weeks for drawings and your minimum six weeks at the city that's like 10 weeks minimum mm -hmm. right? that's like that's over two months still and sometimes it takes two to three months to get those permits issued once you get into buildings now we're we're probably like four five or six months to get those permits issued because of the the, uh, the review cycles right um, right so, so that definitely yeah, planning, mm -hmm. go ahead sorry sorry like this is where planning and thinking ahead is so important. You can't just buy the property and expect to start right away. As soon as you get it under contract, you need to get in there and get, get going on your drawings. Yeah, no, for sure. And before you close, do the drawings as, as much as possible, or at least get them started, get your BCIN through to start measuring before closing. Cause you could save two, three weeks right there, just waiting for close regardless. Okay. So, so let's, let's take a little bit of a, a shift. Cause I want to talk about your, your investing per se. You yourself, BCIN designer stuff aside, I know we, we've got a bunch of projects, probably 10 of them on the go together with Lee, yourself and myself. But aside, aside from that, what, what does your portfolio strategy mostly consist of? I know you, you're dabbling into development, but you were doing burrs. Like maybe walk us through that a little bit. Yeah. So yeah, I'm an investor first. I started out doing bungalow conversions, primarily do mostly student rentals. That's how I kind of started. And we've switched into the small buildings, the anything from like a five to a 22 unit building conversions is, is what we're getting into now. But I also started a development company just in the past year with another business partner for land development, specifically types of projects. And so we actually did purchase a, a land parcel not too long ago, and it's, uh, we're going to be developing it into 66 stacked townhouses. And this is in, in Brantford area. And so that is a new space for me to operate in. And it's really interesting because it's a whole different set of consultants you're working with. We're, we're used to working with our mechanical designers or engineers, but once you, once you get into land development, you're working with geotechnical engineers, you're working with parking experts mm -hmm. or parking studies or traffic studies. You're working with your urban planner, your planning consultant. There's a whole list of different processes at the city that you have to work through, like your pre-con and your, your zoning bylaw amendments and your public hearings and all this kind of stuff. And so the timelines on these, these development projects is, you know, 
for the ones at least that I'm involved in now, I'm involved in two different ones and, and, and it's about two years to take it through that type of process. But what I'm finding as an investor is that I'm getting a, a much better return on my time. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so I can put in the, the same amount of effort and energy into a development project, but I can yield a heck of a lot more units on the back end. Yes, it takes time to go through that development process, but once you're there, all of a sudden you're getting dozens and dozens and dozens of units on the back end. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey, are you looking for a reliable contractor for your next Burr multifamily conversion or flip project? Somebody who understands how to work with investors and also real estate investing itself. I've personally partnered with Lee Polak from Wise Construction. We're actively doing many projects together in Hamilton and Welland. So things like smaller three and four unit conversions and also some larger buildings where we're converting some large empty commercial spaces into residential units. And it's always been important to me to partner and hire a contractor who does not only high quality work, but is on time and on budget. And it's also a huge bonus that they have their own in-house trades, employees and a warehouse full of building materials so that they can avoid the many labor and material shortages that we hear about often these days. A good project done on time, on budget and with high quality work will be key to the success of your Burr multifamily conversion or flip project. So to connect with Lee from Wise Construction, text or phone him at 416-525-5951. Again, that is 416-525-5951. And now back to the show. And now back to the show. Right. Now, is your plan to sell them off individually, to bring in investors, to build, or just develop it and sell it to a builder? Well, so on the townhouse project that we're in right now, we're actually, we're running two different financial models on it. You know, one is to, you know, build and sell like, like a traditional developer. Uh, The other model is to build and keep and almost flip it to yourself with working with CMHC. And just like we're working through CMHC on some of our building conversions, Sarah, obviously we can work with CMHC on the new development stuff. Mm And so, so it's really interesting, some of the different programs that they have, and I've applied for seed funding for through CMHC to help cover some of the planning costs and planning work and uh, application fees. Cause on the larger projects, just the planning work alone can be a few hundred thousand dollars and CMHC does provide seed funding to help cover some of those expenses, but it is a, it's a bit, it's a new space for me. It's a, it's a huge learning curve before I start advising other clients on, on stuff like this, I need to go through it myself first. Mm -hmm. Just like before I helped people with bungalow conversions, I did a whole whack of them myself first before, you know, we did building conversions. I did a few of them myself first so that I can properly advise clients on, on what, on what to expect. Right. So, and I see the future of housing is, is not just housing renovation, but housing creation. So creating units that have never, ever existed before. And over the next you know, couple of decades, we need a heck of a lot more housing units. And, and, and you've done some, some additional dwelling units as well, converted garages and different things like that, which, which I think are, are pretty cool. But absolutely, you, there's such a shortage of housing. This is why I think we're like a big reason why we're in this situation right now is the, the shortages and the demand and the, the, the lack of supply. Why do you think there's so much red tape? 
right? Like, I mean, there's, there's always, I mean, I, I've heard some stories even with, with neighbors and stuff like that, really complaining and trying to squash projects. Like what, what are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah. Like when you, when you dig deep into why, why does a zoning bylaw requirement exist? You know, at some point in time, there was probably a very legitimate reason why these zoning bylaws have been implemented. The problem is, is that in many of our municipalities, these zoning bylaws actually date back to the 1950s, if not earlier. And, you know, they just haven't been updated yet, right? And like any government body, they like to keep adding, as they get complaints from neighbors or whatever, they start adding new bylaws to the bylaw. And so we get a compounding effect of just more and more regulation, more and more requirements. And what they don't do is remove remove requirements at the same time. And so we just keep getting a compounding effect of more and more requirements. And some of the original bylaws are so outdated that they don't even make sense in today's environment of trying to create housing. Now, the, the cities and the province and the municipalities have made good changes that have allowed increase in density. We've seen some great changes, but there's still a lot of work to do in our municipalities when it comes to zoning bylaw to further reduce the regulations. And it's, it's, you're not just working with one little entity. It's a multifaceted process. It does. So when it comes to housing reform or zoning bylaw reform, it really does start with the, with the province, with provincial policies, because our municipalities have to craft their official plans and subsequent zoning bylaws to align with provincial policy. So we really need good, strong direction from the province to the municipalities so that they in turn can create the required changes in their official plans and zoning bylaws to really make it much easier to get housing created. If we had a, if we had very common sense, clear, clearly defined zoning bylaws that were easy to achieve, you know, there'd be uh, way less minor variances involved and way less neighbors getting angry about stuff. Mm-hmm. Hey, can I, can I ask yeah. just because like, as people say terms, there might be somebody that doesn't know what a minor variance is. Can you just quickly explain that? So yeah, minor variance is, is something, is an application that you have to apply for if you can't comply with a zoning bylaw requirement. So as a quick example, parking, parking right? We require three parking spaces according to the bylaw, but we can only fit two. So now we have to apply for a variance and ask for a reduction in one parking space. And to talk about parking, I I did a garage conversion up on Hamilton Mountain. It was one of the very first garage conversions applied for, and we needed a minor variance for a reduction in parking from three to two parking spaces. And like any minor variance, a notice goes out to all of the surrounding neighbors. And there was a few neighbors in particular who just completely hated the idea that somebody was converting a garage into a dwelling unit. And so they went around and they knocked on all the doors of the neighbors and got everybody fired up. And we ended up with 150 petition, a signature petition against our application. Uh, the, the local ward councilor got involved and made it into the, uh, the media. It became a big, a big deal, you know, and if, if the zoning bylaw was a little more common sense to it, where we didn't need all of these parking spaces, especially for these very tiny, tiny units, we could have saved a lot of grief and we could have saved a lot of heartache in our neighborhoods, in mm-hmm. our community. And what happened with this particular... What was the end result? I don't think I actually... Bylaw, 
So what happened is after our variance got denied, because it did get denied, we did appeal to the OLT, the Ontario Land Tribunal, because our property was located within 120 meters of a bus stop and we needed a reduction in parking. So it was a very, this, no, city staff fully supported our application, but because mm-hmm. of the neighborhood opposition, they pressured committee of adjustment and it got denied. So we appealed it. But what happened in between uh, the denial and when we appealed, the city of Hamilton changed the zoning bylaw to, re- to remove all parking requirements for new SDUs, like new Perfect. secondary dwellings. So, so the city in turn changed their, their zoning bylaw. And so we ended up reapplying under the new zoning bylaws and we got our, we got our permit issued for nice. the garage conversion. And so this is a prime example of, because we're dealing with an outdated zoning bylaw, we mm-hmm. caused a lot of grief in a neighborhood that otherwise probably wouldn't have known. They probably wouldn't have known that there's they wouldn't a have known and we could have saved them a lot of heartache and grief. And so this is where we can really keep peace in our neighborhoods if we have yeah. good common sense zoning bylaw. Do they but, do, do the neighbors know? Like do they know? Oh them? yes. Oh like uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of eyeballs on this on this application and this property. We're in there constructing it right now on the with the uh, with our wise construction group. But yeah the neighbors are putting up a fight because they they don't believe that we should have it because it got denied by committee of adjustment. But what they don't realize is the city themselves changed the rules and we now have an issued building permit. So as of right, legally, we can construct it. So it is a bit of an issue, but at the end of the day, we have a building permit. And so we're moving forward. Why do you think it is that the neighbors really are so opposed to it? It's primarily a misunderstanding or a misinformation about what what exactly it is that we do. And as, as investors and landlords, we do, we do easily get vilified out there in the, in the public eye. And so we as an industry, we need to do a much better job kind of informing and educating the public on why these units are desirable, why secondary dwellings or basement apartments or garage conversions or laneway houses, why these are desirable. As a quick example, just in the last four years, my firm alone We've been involved in the creation of over 600 legal dwelling units here in Ontario. And I'm working on a townhouse project that's going to take about four to six years from start to finish to get built. And that's only yielding 66 units. Okay. So in in four years, we've been able to create 600 dwelling units using existing buildings and basements and garages and laneway houses versus a new land development project, which is only yielding 66 units. Okay. So we can 10 X the amount of legal dwelling units here in Ontario by just working with existing buildings mm-hmm. and allowing these types of units. Yeah. And so that's starting to get the attention of you no know, decision makers at the province and municipal levels. They see that we can in fact create 10 X the amount of housing by these types of, so it's really important work that we're doing. And I think then the rents are not going to go as crazy high year over year, because there's going to be a little bit of a higher vacancy because there's going to be more supply. I don't know what the crazy number is with all the immigration that's coming in and how many units were short every single year, but like looking at that number, you know, and, and somebody is probably listening to this and they have the, the answer. I just don't, can't remember off the top of my head, but it was like hundreds and thousands of units that were short every single year. Yeah. And actually this year, the stats came out that we're actually, uh, we're down in housing starts this year. So the governments like to make these announcements, we're going we're to be, you know, increasing housing by 10 times the amount of housing. But the very first year, we, we've actually decreased 
the amount of new housing starts. And it's because we, there's too much uh, regulation. And, but that's a big, big item to overcome. Reducing regulation and red tape is not an easy task. Well, even like the development fees and the parkland fees, like, I mean, even for one of our buildings, it's like half a million dollars in just fees. It's just insane. I mean, I think there's ways that you, you're going to make it work that you can balance it out and pay and pay us a little bit every, you know, so often or whatnot. But like somebody has all these fees like that, that cost comes back on the tenants. It comes back on, you know, the sale price. It comes back on certain things, just putting it out there. There's a lot of fees. No, there it's multifaceted, the problem, right? And there's no one solution like, you know, basement apartments and garage units and stuff is not the, the primary answer. It's multifaceted. Yes, you know, government fees, uh, development fees is, is one aspect, right? It all adds to the cost of implementing that unit. But, you know, we got to be careful with our government leaders because, you know, they say one thing, like they're going to increase housing by a million housing units, but then on the, on the back end, which nobody sees it, they jack the development fees. Because mm-hmm. why? Because developers, you know, their hands are tied, right? They're not going to squawk. But if the, you know, for the general public, seeing that we're going to implement a million housing units, you know, it's good for politics. It, it gets the votes, unfortunately, but then you start digging into it and it's, uh, there's, there's oh, a, a lot let's... of, a lot of issues. Yeah, for sure. I'll let, I'll, I'll put it this way from a, from a real estate investor standpoint. I think the conservatives are the way to go. Liberals and NDP do not like us. They don't like landlords and they don't like investors for the majority of the, of them. So I'll leave it at that. Ken, we're going to go to our lightning round as the next part of the podcast. I'm going to ask you five questions. You probably got the same ones three years ago when you were on the podcast last year. Give me the first answer that comes to mind in like 10 seconds or less. Okay. Okay. Today's lightning round has been brought to you by midtermrentalproperties.ca. It is a new way to rent, make more cash flow, take back control over our investments and our portfolios using a different creative strategy and pivoting. So if you want to find out more, go to midtermrentalproperties.ca. All right. Question number one, what is your favorite real estate investing book? My favorite real estate investing book um, right now is Atomic Habits. All right. That's a great one. Number two, not necessarily real estate related, but do you have a favorite podcast? My favorite podcast is I, I really enjoy Tom and Nick Carrazza's podcast from Rockstar Real Estate. Mm-hmm. Um, I really love their insight into the economy. And uh, yeah. Okay. All right. Number three, what do you do for fun? What do I do for fun? For me, my fun result revolves around spending time on my boat. Yes. I like, I like getting those invites as well. You have a beautiful, a beautiful boat and it's, uh, it is nice and it's very close to the office too. So it's, uh, it's a great boat. Um, number four, if you lost everything, all your money, all your assets tomorrow, how would you start again? I would probably, uh, jump, skip all the basement apartments and, uh, tries and fours and head right into, um, the larger buildings or directly into land development. All right. Awesome. And number five, if somebody has only $50,000, they want to get started somehow, how would you recommend they spend that 50 grand? Ooh, great question. I think you should spend some money on coaching. Um, I was never a big believer in coaching until this past year, but I definitely realized the benefits of, of, of having good uh, people behind you advising you. Uh, so spend some money on coaching, but then maybe maybe you have to partner with somebody and JV with somebody in order to because you only have you only have fifty grand to work with. Probably find a JV partner and uh, someone who's more experienced than you, so that you can learn from them. All right, awesome. Thanks for playing the lightning round, Ken. 
Where can my listeners reach out and find out more? Yeah, I'm very easy to find. You know, my name is Ken Beacondam. So Facebook, Instagram, it's all Ken Beacondam. You can find me at the website, uh, legalsecondsuites.com. And we'd love to connect with you guys. Feel free to add me on Facebook and Instagram as well. Okay, amazing. Ken, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Sarah. Hey guys, before you go, I wanted to ask you a question. What's stopping you from starting or growing your own real estate investment portfolio? I know for me, before I started, I had plenty of reasons and at the time they all seemed very valid, but as I started my journey, these reasons slowly fell away and eventually only one reason remained. What was actually stopping me was having a proven, actionable, repeatable system. I didn't have that. And the way that was going to change was by investing in myself, learning, listening, and looking for ways that worked. And also, most importantly, discovering what didn't and not making those mistakes again. Fast forward to today, I now have a proven, repeatable series of action steps that has enabled me to build my seven-figure portfolio consisting of multiple homes, and I'm able to manage that in two to three hours a month. Is that something that you would want? Well, I've actually taken all the knowledge I've accumulated and put that into a comprehensive step-by-step online program. It's called Rise, and it's a program that will help you from where you are now to where you want to be faster and with less of the headaches that I had. So it consists of all the templates and the resources that I use, plus over 40 instructional videos that you get lifetime access to for just a small one-time investment. And, you know, my recommendation is to make the time now to invest in yourself and grow your portfolio to seven figures so that you can bring your retirement dreams closer. If you want some more information about Rise, just go to sarahlarby.com forward slash R-I-S-E to access more details and book your spot. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larby. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.